0: Welcome back to Building Better Basketball, the Basketball Australia Coaches Podcast. I'm Neil Gray, Community Coach, Development Manager at Basketball Australia. Trying to describe today's guest could take many turns, as Lee Ellis is known for many different reasons to the Australian basketball community. You might know him for his work on NBA TV. You might know him from the global podcast Smash that is the Starters. You might just randomly have started following him on social media as a shooting competition with Steph Curry. Yes, the Steph Curry came across your timeline. (laughs) Before there was Ben Simmons, Dyson Daniels et al., there was Lee Ellis, arguably the Australian most well-known to the Australian, American, apologies, basketball general public. Now he has a new project, which anyone who loves basketball will, I'm sure, as they put their head to the pillow at night, dream about. Touring the world, just playing pick-up hoops and learning about the people and the game. I know I've said this before on other episodes, but honestly, I just can't wait to have a chat with Lee about hoops and see where this goes. Lee, welcome to Building Better Basketball, and thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks very much for having me, Neil.
0: Um, Can you tell the listeners a bit about how the boy from Sunbury and Victoria ended up synonymous with the NBA (laughs) podcasting, and just a a bit about the background, I suppose?
1: Yeah, well, I I grew up in Melbourne in the 80s, and uh, born in the 70s, but I grew up in the 80s, and my family was a big... Sporting family. I have two older brothers and dad and my brothers played basketball, mum played netball and tennis and uh, was also very active. And so I was born into a family of, you know, passionate sports fans and sports people. And so one thing that in Australia, we grow up playing in the winter, we play Australian rules football in Melbourne, and particularly in the 80s, we didn't really have rugby then. So it was Australian rules football in the winter and then cricket in the summer. But all the year round, it was basketball, and so because it's an indoor game, and so I would always play basketball. And as I got a bit older, I started playing on on uh, men's teams with dad, and then making my way up the ranks. But the real the real change for me came when we in the '80s knew about Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and Dr. J, but we couldn't get access to you know any highlights, really, or any videos or anything like that, because there was no cable TV and there was no internet back then. And then one day my older brother came home from school and he had a copy of the 1987 all-star game. And that one was really iconic because uh, at the time I, I was a big WWE fan, like a lot of kids were as well. So I knew Hulk Hogan and Andre the giant and King Kong Bundy and, you know, Randy Savage and all that. And so they have these great stage names. Okay. And so, you know, and while I was a basketball fan, I wanted to watch this game and we saw it and it was great. And, you hear guys like Sir Charles Barkley and magic Johnson and Moses Malone. And it's like, it felt like there was a crossover. It's like, that could be, they could be wrestlers as much as they are basketball players. And then anyway, ultimately what happens is in the game for anyone hasn't seen it, the West is trailing by two points with three seconds to go. This guy, Rolando Blackman drives inside and has four people jump on him. He goes to the free throw line, no time left. I mean, it's, it's basically a movie script right there. Uh, And he, and he knocks in these two free throws ties the game. And in the overtime, the West goes on to win. And so again, like in, in terms of the um, wrestling reference or comparison or analogy, if you like that is like, it's scripted, you know, that that's, that's like a movie, any basketball movie, usually the team wins on the buzzer, some miraculous shot. And so that happened. And as an 11 year old boy, you could, you know, you you'd so easily seduced by this incredible game. Like, oh, my God, every NBA game must be like this. And all these star players are incredible. And so my love and passion for basketball really just uh, exploded then. But I still couldn't get too much access to it. So but slowly as the 80s became the 90s, especially as the Bulls and Michael Jordan really took off and became a global phenomenon, we started getting more games. We started getting more highlights, magazines. Uh, you know, coverage and things like that. And, and it just I just couldn't get enough. I just there was nothing. If anyone had anything, I used to get USA Today newspapers from my friend whose dad worked at Qantas and he would clean the planes when they would come in from Los Angeles and he'd get these USA Todays that are crumpled up and, you know, had food spilled on them and had the crossword half done. I was buying them off my friend. I, don't, I mean, it's crazy now when I say it. Dad would give me pocket money. I'd pay my friend who was getting them for free uh, to give me these USA Todays. And dad found out about it. And he was just like, oh my God, what's going on here? But anyway, I I just consumed absolutely everything and anything I could about the NBA. And then as I got older... You know, in sort of my late teens and into my 20s, I I really wanted to go and live in America, but I couldn't, it wasn't easy to do unless you are, you know, basically, you know, super qualified and super experienced. It's hard to get a work visa. Uh, so I lived in London for six years and then I moved to Toronto for a year because Toronto then had an NBA team, of course, the Raptors. And that was like, okay, it's not America, but it's an NBA team, that's good enough. And so I, I lived in Toronto um, and then I actually went back to London then I went back to Toronto. And, and I, I just, you know, I'd been working in banks and doing jobs that I didn't really enjoy, but they pay, you know, they pay the bills. Um, But then I took a chance Uh, just after I got married. I I tried to get into sports media and sports journalism, not really knowing exactly how it was going to go. I managed to hook up then with uh, who were the Basketball Jones who were working at at uh, this uh, sports media network in Toronto. We started working together. And then NBA TV came along, uh, wow, it's a decade ago now since we started there um, and and took us down to Atlanta and we started doing a show down there. And it was, you know, it's still surreal when I think about it, how, uh, because people often ask me, you know, can you, can you share your career path and, and how you got to where you are? And I'm like, you know no because there's no real (laughs) blueprint there was no there was no grand plan as an 11 year old i didn't sit 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 down and map it all out and say okay i need to do this and then this and then this really all it was and this is the part i do say to people is you just have to sort of get out uh, knock on a few doors put yourself in positions where things might happen and and just sort of keep on trying and and you know who knows where it's going to take you so you know there's no Um, there's no sort of, uh, you know, copy of what I did that I can say, okay, if you follow this path, it's going to work for you as well. Because so much of it was opportunity, chance, trying things, getting knocked back, trying another thing. I started writing. I I mean, I wrote, fantasy hockey uh reports for probably six months fantasy ice hockey didn't know anything about it but it was an opportunity to learn it was opportunity for exposure and when the guy asked me you a big hockey fan oh huge huge love love me some puck, you know <laughs> and uh so I started writing you know uh fantasy hockey reports um but to me it wasn't about you, you didn't have to have a great knowledge of hockey you had to have a great attitude and an ability to at least look at what other people are writing and and sometimes it's not plagiarism but you you take words and you sort of think okay this is the term they use the jargon they use and all those little steps along the way i've covered wrestling i've covered tennis boxing motor racing um what else i mean everything mma i've 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 had some i've had my finger in one of those pies at some point because anytime an opportunity was presented to me i just said yeah i'll do it not really worrying about whether or not it'd be good or bad, more just taking uh, whenever there was those opportunities that came along, taking them and just giving it a shot. And so it all sort of culminated in me getting to the Basketball Jones and then ultimately uh, on NBA TV.
0: So I think you can take out writing and you can take out all the examples that Lee used and put that into a, a coaching perspective as well. I mentioned it in the introduction and I think, First
1: things first, what kind
0: of what kind of player are where you growing up are now? What what kind of basketball player were you?
1: So I was always the littlest kid out on the court. I was young for my age and I was skinny and thin and uh, tiny as well. And people often thought I should have been playing in a age below the one I was playing in. Uh, but one of my heroes was Isaiah Thomas from the Detroit Pistons, because even though I didn't get I couldn't see live games of the Pistons, I could see out on the court this little guy because he's he's not he's normal height by by regular people standards in the NBA Isaiah Thomas is is tiny, you know he's the average height is about six seven about two fifty pounds I think it is and Isaiah's is six one in shoes uh, and probably what one hundred eighty pounds but he fought so much above his weight he punched so much uh, above his weight and those Pistons teams. That went to the finals they went three years in a row they won two championships honestly they should have won three if it wasn't for Isaiah's ankle in game six against the Lakers in 88 uh and some dodgy refereeing in game seven in LA there as well so he was my inspiration because I was like well I'm not the biggest guy I'm not the fastest I can't jump too high but if I just give it everything I've got I can maybe succeed so and again being a small guy you kind of just default to be being the point guard on a team. So I often played that role. Um, and I didn't get into the paint all that much. I was more a shooter. So fortunately, I had a decent shot, uh, which has carried me through uh, most of my life. But uh, the, right. Isaiah, was the insp- Isaiah was the inspiration for me to to at least believe that I belonged on the court. So the
0: boy from Sunbury with the decent shot versus the son of the one of the NBA's Greatest shooters who became arguably the game's greatest shooter of all time. Talk me through how uh, how that works. The Steph Curry versus Lee Ellis shootout.
1: <laughs> well, so so what happened with, in that uh, instance was um, it was, I was uh, Steph had been in the three point shootout three times. Now this was up to two thousand fourteen, where. He was. We knew he was a good shooter. Then we didn't know at that point he was going to become quite as good as he was. He certainly wasn't the MVP at that point, and so he'd never won the three point shootout. And and again, it's not like people were questioning his ability to shoot or his you know clutch ability or anything like that. He just hadn't won. So it was a bit of a quirk. And at the All Star Weekend in 2015, we were running through our top 20 moments uh, of All Star Weekends in history, and one of the ones that I pointed out, I just love the three point shootout. As a kid, I just I just thought there was something really special about that. I mean, obviously, the dunks are more spectacular. There's more artistry and creativity there. But there's something for me, maybe as a shooter, because I could never dunk, that I just connected more with the shooting. And Larry Bird, of course, won the first three uh, shootouts in NBA history. And he's famous, of course, for talking trash. You know, in 1988, in the third one, he walked into the locker room and just said, all right, who's coming in second? And in 1986, I think it was the very first one they ever had when he got the check. Uh, at the presentation, they said, you know, congratulations. He said, ah, that check's had my name on it for a week, you know. <laughs> so so he he was he was so great at trash talking. But the other thing that Larry Bird did, and I especially noticed this in 1988, before he went into the final, in, in each of his rounds, actually, he lined the balls up perfectly on the right-hand side so he was ready and prepared so that when he would shoot, he had this, like, rhythmic style, so he just had to flick the ball. And, and in that final in 1988 against Dale Ellis, he needs to hit his last three to win the contest. And it's a famous moment. Again, he launches the last, the second, or the third last one goes in the second last one, and then he needs the money ball to win. It hasn't even dropped in and he's got the finger in the air celebrating his victory and it goes in. And so I referenced that and Steph went out and won the contest for the first time in 2015. And afterwards a reporter asked him and said, Steph, uh, um you know you haven't won this contest you've been in it three times until tonight what was the difference and he he referenced that he had uh heard on nba tv that someone talked about how larry bird lined the balls up and so he implemented that and he went out there and won and it was effective and so uh that was an incredible moment he didn't say my name he didn't say the tv show <laughs> but he obviously referenced uh he referenced what he saw during our show and then so What I would always do over All Star Weekend when we were at NBA TV is I would try to do the proper NBA three point shootout. Same distance with the ball, same ball, money ball rack, same time and everything. I think that's the
0: appeal of it, isn't it? That anybody, like, that's the one NBA skill that anybody could practice at home as well, because no one else is going to be able to jump over a bus or
1: something like that. No, I mean you've got you've got those like celebrity dunkers who who do it um but but this is you're right this is something that you don't actually it doesn't matter how athletic or unathletic you are if you can shoot you can sort of give yourself you can at least have a shot at doing that. And so uh you know I would always try to add something to it. I worked with Kyle Corver one year and I I did other things and I uh and so anyway it came about where I was talking with our producer, Matt Austin, and uh, we were trying to come up with an idea. And he he said, he goes, why don't we try Steph? And I'm like, I mean, yeah, obviously i would do it with Steph. But at the time, I think, I don't actually know if Steph was the, MV- <clears throat> excuse me, the MVP or not, but I don't think he was. But at the time, the Warriors had won a couple of championships. Steph had won uh, both of his MVPs. So he wasn't at the time. Um, and it was like, I'm like, we're asking, you know, one of the most famous athletes in the world for a private uh, shooting session. And I honestly, I was like, it's not going to happen. I sort of talked. I was, I was like, there's no way. And then uh, it was two days before Matt called me at like, like 10 o'clock at night and said, the Warriors said, Steph's going to do it. You have to fly to San Francisco tomorrow after the show from Atlanta. You're going to have, you know, this, uh, you're going to have this session with Steph. And, and I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So I'm trying now to frantically scramble and get everything together. And I get there uh, and and I wake up the next morning, I go to practice and, and, and he's there. And I, I went up to the Warriors PR guy, Ray Ritter. And I said, uh, I'm here for the thing. And he said, oh, what is it? What is it? And I'm like, oh my God. So I'm here, I'm shooting with Steph. He did this and he goes, okay, okay. He goes, uh, you've got eight minutes. And I'm like, oh my God, eight minutes. Like that's, you know, that. And, and anyway, so he said, so I went up to Steph and I said, hi, Steph Lee. And he said, hi. And I said, uh, do you know why I'm here? And He's like, no, why? And I'm like, oh, well, we're doing this thing, you know, Anyway, so I was like, oh, my God. And there was no uh, assigned producer for me. I had to sort of do it all in the direction as well. There was a couple of camera crews there from the Warriors. Um, So I'm trying to conceive the idea, produce the idea, direct everybody, um, and just hang out with Steph. And anyway, we ended up shooting for basically 40 minutes, just shooting around me and Steph. We put together a little feature, and the funny thing was that I I kept seeing the uh, Warriors PR Ray. He kept walking over, and I just, would just sort of turn my head every time I saw. Him. I didn't want to. Yeah, I didn't want to see the eye. I didn't want to. Just didn't want to make eye contact. But because Steph ultimately was the one who decided when he was done, uh, I, I sort of I you know kind of hid behind Steph. I like, hey, if, he, if Steph's okay with it, then I guess we can keep going. And uh, honestly, one of the most surreal experiences of my life to shoot with him. You know, forty minutes just talking, chatting, um, and it didn't feel at all like uh i didn't fanboy at all because it sort of felt more just authentic and genuine and and it was such an awesome experience and and again something like that if i had told people before i joined the starters or before i went to canada or, or as a kid he said i'm gonna i'm gonna help steph curry the greatest shooter of all time win a three-point contest you'd sound like a lunatic you know um So you can't plan for things like that. You can't even prepare for them. You can't even, in fact, imagine things like that because they just sound ridiculous. But what can happen when you put yourself in positions, unexpected things can happen. And and if you you get a chance like that, honestly, you just try to make the most of it. Because as I say, uh, because of the short notice, they didn't send a producer with me. They didn't send anyone to sort of help me construct it. They basically just said, go. And so in that moment, you're like, well, I'm not prepared. Do I just say, do I turn it down? Or do I say, all right, I'm just going to go and get what I get and come back. And that, that was my mentality. It was like, there's no way I'm turning this down. It may not never happen again. Um, And again, as a father, I had to sort of say to my wife, are you okay to just take care of the household, take the boys to school and back and do all those things on short notice here for a couple of days, because I've got this opportunity. She's like pushing me out the door, go, 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 you know? (laughs) So all those uh, factors uh, come into play, but uh, ultimately, it's just one of the most uh, amazing experiences I've ever had.
0: So that's a, we've we've managed to create an excellent segue here. So your wife's pushing you out the door to go to San Francisco for probably forty-eight hours. The the latest Lee Ellis project is titled the International <laughs> Pickup Tour, uh, yeah. where you've uh, you've been in Croatia so far. You've been in a, in a couple of other places that I'll let you tell us about um yeah tell us how it's going the plans for it if you're coming back to australia for it and if your wife's still pushing you out the door to uh do trips of a slightly longer and further magnitude
1: you know when i say it out loud and i think my wife keeps pushing me out the door maybe uh maybe there's a bigger (laughs) story she's trying to tell there uh yeah no i just decided um I we we travel a lot as a family and every time we travel I always if I see a court and a hoop and some people playing I just turn up and start playing and there was no real intention behind that but when I I played in Germany in Berlin in 2021 when we were still sort of covered you know we didn't we were vaccinated so we started traveling we we didn't quite know what to do but anyway. I went out there and, and played and my son just started recording it. I didn't actually say to him, hey, record this, but he did because it was like, hey, dad's playing, I'll record it. And so I put those clips up on uh, Instagram, not really knowing how they were going to be received. And a few people said, hey, why don't, you know, why don't you, if you're in my city, come and play. And so I didn't sort of think too much of it. And then um, the more I sort of did things like this and started traveling, people would often say like, hey, if you're ever in my city, Come and play. I'll organise a game for you. And then last year in 2022, it happened when I was in Barcelona. I had two games. In fact, one uh, wasn't planned, but the second one, I, I spoke to a person who messaged me on Instagram, and said, "Come to this court. We'll get a, get a run going." And so I did. And 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 when I again when I put that up on Instagram, I just got flooded with messages from people saying, "Come to Greece. Come to China. Come to Pakistan. Come to everywhere." Uh, if you want to come and play basketball. And it sort of it just got me thinking that I I was like, I think there's something to this. Um, but ultimately, if you if you sort of try to plan and prepare for it too much, that can just take up time. So I I sort of felt, I thought, if I'm going to do this, I just basically have to sort of go for it and do it. And once, you know, I, I didn't, it wasn't a sort of decision I made overnight, but over the last uh, sort of month or two of summer over here, as I mentioned it to my wife and we started talking about it and how it would come together and what would it be, she was fully on board. And she's like, listen, you you know, life is about living and you want to take a chance, go for it. You know, we, we like, that's how we sort of uh, respect each other's dreams and and hopes where you support each other all the time. And she was like, once she was not hesitating at all, that really then gave me the uh, impetus to be like, well, I've got, to, I've got to give this a try now. And so I started contacting people who had been contacting me on Instagram, said, all right, I'm going to come to your city. Are you, are you able to organize a game? Are you able to get some people together and, and to do it? And the response was, was very, very strong. And so I decided that I'm going to give this a shot. And uh, yes, I'm five countries down at the moment, Germany, Slovenia, Croatia, Serbia, and Greece. Um, that came together at the end of November. I ended up actually playing more than five games. I think I ended up playing, I think I played eight games in the end because a couple of games sort of popped up that weren't planned uh, and and they just happened. I had two in Zagreb. I had uh, two in uh, Belgrade as well and two in Athens, in fact. So I had, I had a lot and I had one in Frankfurt that was definitely not planned because I was flying from Atlanta to Ljubljana in Slovenia via frankfurt uh, and the flight out of atlanta was delayed which means i missed the connection in uh, frankfurt so i had 12 hours in frankfurt it was a beautiful day and i said all right well i'm going to find a park and see if i can get anything going and i ended up having a great game in hoffen park there so um but that to me is also so much of the adventure is the unknown and, and the unexpected and the unplanned and i just love to uh, embrace all that and uh, and see where it takes me so I'm planning the second leg. It's uh, I haven't got the final details just yet, but that will hopefully I'll hopefully know within the next two weeks uh, exactly where I'm going and uh, what I'm doing. But um you know, it's it's for me, it really is combining my two passions, which is traveling and basketball and going out playing, having fun. It's not about trying to. You know, somehow become a, a street ball legend, or maybe try to catch on to an NBA roster, and nothing about that. It's about having fun, meeting people, exploring cities, trying new things, uh, and just going back to where it all started for me. Really, as a kid, just playing basketball with my friends on the streets. And having worked in the industry uh, professionally for for about eleven years uh, in the NBA world, but professionally for longer that in the sports world, it just it, it just dawned on me. It's like, well, again, if you if you try to think about everything logically and you, and you plan it, you probably wouldn't do it, but sometimes I think it's more important to just take a chance and see where things go uh, rather than always know exactly what's going to happen. Because throughout my life, I've lived, uh, you know, several times where I haven't known the answer or the outcome and I've just given it a shot. And And if I didn't live that way, I wouldn't have had that opportunity with Stephen Curry. I wouldn't have had that opportunity to move to Atlanta because ultimately those uh, events happen because of taking chances uh, in the years preceding them.
0: So you're using the game as an international language. And I will, uh, in the show notes, put the links to to Lee's um, social media channels because he's met some amazing people. Look at Doncic's father, an amazing uh, lady. I can't remember what country it was in, but she was just doing trick shots of basketball skills that were just amazing. How have you found um, using the game as that connection point and and how perceptions, I suppose, of basketball differ around the world? Because we were talking before we started recording about how in Australia everyone looks to the NBA um, and probably the NBA probably not meaning to looks down a little bit on the world um, as the as the mecca of basketball and everything kind of feeds up to that. So how have you... How have you found the the perceptions of basketball on your travels?
1: Overall, I think some people I think are worried. Well, I'm not good enough. Uh, you know, Lee Lee's expecting a certain standard. But once they once they turn up, and they see me, it's like, listen, if you turn up, we can play. There's no uh, again, I'm not here to try to uh exclude anybody or or anything it's it's the game the love of the game is why we're there the love of the game is why people follow me on social media and why i've messaged people and said hey i'm coming to play so so show up uh and that's ultimately what happens and and i think that's really been proven because for me whenever i've played in in any any game that i've played now you start off kind of with teams and scoring Within minutes, people just stopped scoring, uh, stopped counting the score, I should say. And people just, we just started playing end to end to end to end. And that happened in so many cities. So the idea that uh, it's it's about trying to win or you want to be on the winning team or anything like that, it's not that. It's about like, oh, we're just playing basketball to have fun. And so maybe within that there's there's people sort of change teams from time to time maybe just to get a break or a rest or whatever but at the end of it no one's jogging logging scores and saying oh we won we beat or anything people are just having fun and playing basketball and then that breaks down so many barriers i think as well and, and so much ice because you're not um n- no one's critiquing anybody no one's pointing the finger about oh we didn't win that was your fault people are going oh this is actually really cool we're just playing that we're just playing to play Uh, you know, it's like that famous quote from the college football, you know, uh, that not college, I think he's an NFL, you know, you play to win the game. It's like, well, in this case, we don't play to win the game. We play to have fun. And so people know as well that I'm recording most of it. I mean, it was all on iPhones there for the first trip. It'll be different for the second trip, but uh, so when they know the camera's there and they know it might be on one of my reels or something on my social media channels, you see people start to show up a little bit. They start to put on a trick or two after they've been playing for a bit because they think, hey, this might this might catch on. And I know one of my friends in Greece who I met, I put up a clip and he messaged me and he said, hey man, my friends, they're all watching it. They loved it. They think it's great. And so, you know, that that's what it's about for me. It's like basketball is, uh, is, is again, what you said earlier, is the hook that brings us all together and then when we're out there playing we just play to have fun and and people are competitive and passionate but not to the point where that uh is is uh, you know that overtakes the need to just be there meet people because so many people at these runs d- don't know the other people who are there but have become friends or or have stayed in touch or have become connected and that to me is uh is, is a is a great feeling knowing that again Maybe you know it was my idea to sort of get people there, but once they're there, then they just go off and meet each other and uh, and and maybe become friends out of it.
0: So we call the podcast "Building Better Basketball," and we do that to cover a couple of angles about what we can do to improve and grow the game in Australia and also around basketball coaching—the good, the bad, the underappreciated nuance of it all. So just interested in your unique perspective on how in australia both as coaches and just in general we can i suppose build better basketball
1: i think the most important thing at a kid's level is that they enjoy themselves and have fun and when you're between the ages of say five and ten it's not about anything more for me than just playing for fun you don't have to have great fundamentals you don't have to have great skills the, the most important part is that kids want to play. And I think sometimes that gets a little bit lost that uh, maybe coaches or, or, or development people want kids locked in from the start, from six or seven years of age. And to me, that could turn you off later down the road because I have two sons and people just assume my kids must love basketball. Well, they're, they like it. But I never say to my kids, you must love basketball. This is my passion. It doesn't mean it's theirs. So we're, we have a hoop in our house and there's basketball. So they dribble and they shoot. But I never, ever say to them, you have to play, you have to love this game, and you have to be good at it as well. When they pick the ball up, they shoot it a couple of times, and then they might go and play Lego or play with their soccer ball or whatever. That, that's, that's how I'm approaching it now. Now, uh, if they get to a stage and an age where they're in their teens and they're like, okay, I like basketball. I want to improve. Then I'll work with them, but I won't force it on them. And I think that to me as well, just from my experience of being around, seeing, seeing again, some other coaches, like drawing up plays for like seven-year-olds and stuff. And I'm like, I, I just don't see that for kids to be the best way to develop them. I think the best thing is like, just give them the balls, lower the hoops, have them feel the ball go in the basket because that's ultimately the best feeling of basketball where you shoot to score. And and if it goes in, you feel great and you want to do it again. And I think that's the best way uh, for kids to fall in love with the game where they believe they can score and and shoot and they're a part of something. And it's not about winning or losing. It's just about participating and being involved. And then as I say, as you get older, if that interest continues to, to be piqued by the kid, then you can start really working on improving the fundamentals of shooting and dribbling and passing and, and all those things, but you don't need to rush it. I, I think it's uh, but I think this is not just basketball. I think it's all sports. Uh, the same with my kids. When they play soccer, we turn up, they play and then we go home and it's never about like, Oh, you, how did you lose to that team today at six years old? It's like, just, if you want to, if you want to go back next week, I'll take you. Uh, because if you're having fun, that's all that really matters to me
0: with your time working at NBA TV, did you come across many NBA coaches? Did you have many inter interactions that kind of stick out with you in your memory?
1: Most of the time they were not coaching at the time. They were either uh, had been coaching, uh, you know, between jobs. So you didn't really get into the nitty gritty with any, any coaches that I can think of, because for example, Jason Kidd had been a coach uh, of the bucks and the nets when he came in, but he wasn't coaching at the time. And, but he was also much more well-known for what he did as a player. So you would talk to Jason Kidd about his playing career rather than his coaching career, because at that point, especially, you know, it hadn't been all that glamorous uh, at his two stops there in Brooklyn and Milwaukee. But uh, I mean, we must've had more coaches over the years. I just, I just can't, I mean, Isaiah Thomas, for example, was a guest on the show. He was a coach, but of course, again, more famous as a player uh, than his uh, coaching career um that definitely seems
0: to be the the trend in america though as well that's very i suppose different to australia where it's the players move into the um coaching space much more seamlessly than here where there's actually a a kind of coaching pathway and a playing pathway and then sometimes they meet at the end other times they, they remain very separate i suppose
1: yeah I I guess uh I guess it sort of just depends on the coach as well like for example Jason Kidd retired and then he went he got a job basically the next day at Brooklyn uh Steve Nash he retired didn't really do anything in the basketball world for uh well I guess he was an assistant at the Golden State Warriors but then he just sort of got plucked out of nowhere also to coach the Brooklyn Nets um and then there's guys like Patrick Ewing who had been an assistant, I think, for up to 20 years and still couldn't get a job, a head coaching job um, in the NBA. So uh, there's no and, – and I remember actually now Steve Nash was asked about that. He said, how do you just get a job without even being an assistant, like a proper assistant coach? And he, and he said, well, yeah, I mean, it's – I don't know. It's just the way it is. And I've heard Adam Silver asked about that before, and he said it's kind of networking as well. Sometimes the owners, the general managers, if they just feel a guy – can be a good coach, they like to go for him. I mean, Steve Kerr, I think, is the best example. He had never coached at any level. And the Warriors had actually had a good season under Mark Jackson, and they decided, we're going to give Steve Kerr the head coaching job. And now he's a uh, four-time champion. And uh, what, he won, f- he won uh, five, I think, as a player. So he's got nine rings himself. But he just kind of got, you know, they said, hey, we think Steve Kerr would be a good job. And he went on to be a very successful coach. Now, it, for me coaching it's so much about the talent you have because uh Steve Kerr had accepted the job with the New York Knicks because Phil Jackson was the GM at the time and he accepted that and then a couple of days later he sort of said uh actually he looked at the two rosters I think it was Carmelo (laughs) Anthony and maybe Raymond Felton on the Knicks at the time and then he saw Steph and Clay and he was like uh I think I'm going to take my chances here with the Warriors (laughs) And so, so he did that because if he took that next job, there's no way he's got four championship rings to his name. So oh. I think, uh, I think he's a great coach and certainly not trying to, um, you know, uh, discredit him for what he's done. I think he he brought the most out of those Warriors teams, but at the same time he had Steph, Clay and Kevin Durant for a couple of those as well. So uh, it, it certainly helps. You can become a lot more aggressive as a coach when you've got the incredible talents of those guys on your roster.
0: So the final question that we ask everyone that, Comes on, Lee. Um, if you could ask one coach in the world, and it can be of any sport as well, it could be an ice hockey uh, coach with your mm, incredible right. passion for that game. Ask yeah. one coach in the world of any sport, alive or dead, the question who would it be and what would the question be?
1: Well, it, it would have to be, um, it would come down to Arsene Wenger, uh, Greg Popovich, Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, I would say I would can I, I hope this is not cheating. I would say to those three guys can we please go out for dinner uh, and Greg Popovich can choose the wine we'll go to Paris uh, where Arsen's from and uh, and have a great meal together. would you three guys come along please so I can just listen to your talk especially Arsen and, and Alex Ferguson because of the big rivalry they had there in the in you know mainly I guess in the 90s in the early part of the 2000s but Greg Popovich as well, he's someone who really like he wouldn't get, he, he would be able to hold his own talking with those guys because he wouldn't just, he's not just a basketball guy. He's uh he's, you know, he's someone who's very uh well traveled and um, he, he would love the wine talk as well. So I would love to sit down with those three guys.
0: Lee, thank you so much for your time today. Um I'll put, as I said, I'll put the links to Lee's socials and the notes and I know you can support uh, Lee's journey as well he's got a very uh a very colorful t-shirt and hoodie available as well that you can um, purchase to uh support the uh, international pickup tour and maybe not on uh, stage two Lee but hopefully in stage three we see you uh, back here in Australia um on the on the tour and um we can um get down and, and support you as well because um I know that uh in Australia, at least the the game continues to grow and the passion continues to grow, and um, I think they would uh, welcome you back like the uh, the hero son that you are. So thank you <laughs>
1: so much for your time
0: and uh, and good luck for um for stage two of the tour.
1: Thanks very much for having me, Neil.